Mark chapter 15 and a few verses there. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him, Jesus, away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. They clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. For a brief moment, I speak a crown of thorns, a crown of gold. And now, Father, we love you. We worship you. We give you great praise and honor and glory. We lift up the name of Jesus in this house. With awe and admiration, we cast our eyes to an empty cross, to the bloody garment stained beneath that, and to an empty tomb and to a resurrected Savior. We thank you. It's more than our tradition, Lord. It is the heartbeat of our lives. So on this Easter morning, we thank you for your resurrection power. And I pray that you would help me to deliver these things from your word, inspired and anointed by you alone. And I pray your blessing upon all the people as I speak them. We pray the prayer in Jesus' name. And everyone said in Jesus' name. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a moment to describe a handful of biblical occurrences which altered the course of human history. I don't speak of a war or an invention that directed or redirected the human race, though there may be many. It was not ingenuity, some scientific or medical breakthrough that made the greatest impact on our days and the lifespan that we can measure. In the Bible's first book, Adam failed to remember the voice of God. So instead of leading Eve in the commandment of the Lord, he kept quiet and the serpent's voice filled the void. Paul said to Timothy, and Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. Simply put, Adam knew what he was supposed to do and what he was not supposed to do. It was Eve that was kept in the dark. And because they ate of the tree that was forbidden of the Lord, the Bible tells us that a curse was given to them, each separately, but the greatest of them was the curse against Adam. It entailed the earth. And for the remainder of his days, the ground would resist him. The dirt, the soil, the fertile soil that once yielded trouble-free fruit and vegetation would become cold and hard. The curse was that he would toil with the earth and by the sweat of his brow, he would grind out a living. In the place of pleasantries that the Garden of Eden afforded them, 
There would be thorns and there would be weeds. The lush land would become indifferent and he would toil against the thorn for the rest of his life. Satan's great divide was put in place and through that most destructive force called deception, mankind succumbed to disobedience and was removed from the presence of God. Communion between the creator and his creation was the plight of the heavenlies to bring them back again. But there would be and there is a spiritual battle that yet rages even today. Light versus darkness. Truth against a lie. Righteousness opposing corruption. It's a tug of war for the souls of people. Adam and Eve were once blameless. They were innocent and pure. But disobedience set them at odds with this holy God. They were once naked and the Bible says unashamed until sin entered their lives. And it was then that God came to clothe them. And he did so with the skin of animals. Animals died to cover the nakedness of the world's first family. Blood was spilled for the first time to cover them. And from that moment, the Old Testament will detail a long line of blood, a trail of blood, from Genesis all the way to Malachi. It will drift against the silent pages before the birth of Christ. Sacrifices too numerous to count were made to pay for the sins of people. God required it so. Hebrews chapter 9 says it this way. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The law was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. The law entailed the basic living standards for people to follow the law. But it also required a yearly sacrifice for every family. And from that mountain, God would command Moses to build a tabernacle, which we know as the tabernacle of Moses. Aaron, the brother of Moses, became the high priest. And it was Aaron who would bring the blood of a perfect lamb into the courtyard, walking through the holy place until finally only he, would pass through the veil that separated an unholy people from a holy God. And inside of that small chamber, blanketed by ram's skin and fine twisted linen of purple, blue, and scarlet, there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. To all of them, it was the embodiment of God himself, the Ark. It was a mere three feet long Two feet and a quarter inch high and two feet and a quarter inch wide. It was as all of the artifacts in the tabernacle made out of acacia wood and then covered with gold. Atop that ark was a lid known as the mercy seat where two cherubs rested, angels facing each other, but with eyes cast downward, their wings cast forward. That ark was the central focus of the entire nation. All that they did, where they went, the places they camped, was in relation to the ark. Their length of the stay in any one place in the wilderness was determined by the cloud of glory that hovered over the golden glowing box. Their movements and their desires were all in submission to the location of the ark. It dictated their very lives because it was where God met man. It was where blood was sacrificed and was offered, sprinkled by the hand of the high priest on the mercy seat and against the sides of that acacia-covered box. God chose blood to pay for sin. 
And one time per year on the day of atonement, a sacrifice was made and blood was sprinkled because God said that the life of the body is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your sins. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It costs a life to pay for sin. A life for sin. Blood for sin. The curse of sin resulted in a lifetime of struggle for man from the garden even to this day. He would labor long hours to pay for a living and he would bring a lamb to pay for sin. But it also demanded the blood of an innocent lamb. It was a dual infliction upon mankind. Thorns and blood. Labor and death. Toil and a sacrifice. Today. This day. The world pauses. Perhaps over a billion people will pause today to celebrate a risen Savior. A Savior, a King that surpasses all other kings. There's no one like Jesus. There's no historical figure likened to this Jesus of Nazareth. Not the great men of the world. Not the great women of the world. Not the aristocrats. No president or king can match him. He is the son of God and the son of man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He came as a sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. John the Baptist, his cousin, declared it so. When John saw Jesus walking toward him, John looked up and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. John's whole life, his whole ministry was about Jesus. And he went on to say in verse 31 of that same chapter, he said, I myself, I didn't really know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. He was a way maker. John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, makes straight the path of the Lord. Jesus came to die. He came to take away the curse from you and me. He came to fulfill the law and on Calvary he took the law in his own hands. He gave his life for the sins of the world. He became the sacrifice for everyone who would ever live, ever have lived and will live. He was the lamb. Isaiah wrote of him a thousand years prior. He is a lamb led before the shears. He didn't open up his mouth. But on that day as they prepared him for crucifixion the Lord did something else. He didn't just come as a lamb, but he also took the curse. He took the thorns. Having been to Israel multiple times, and a few of us have gone, it is striking to see the small amount of greenery foliage left in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. The north of Israel might boast of green pastures as in the area around Haffa, or to the west of Jerusalem around Bet Shemesh. But Israel is mostly dry, it's filled with rocks and stones. We don't, we don't know how many. There's so many rocks and stones, millions of them. Most of the land needs to be irrigated just to grow a little blade of grass. We do know that the most common tree or shrub at the time of Christ was not the gopher wood, not the gopher tree, or even the olive tree. They are rare. But it was one of the many genus of the acacia trees. The acacia was what Moses used to make all the articles in the tabernacle with, but it was also still the most common tree and shrub at the time of Jesus Christ. The acacia 
can have trees and small shrubs that boast of protruding branches and then thorns. Those thorns from the acacia can protrude two to three inches in length. And the branches of that, of that tree produce these branches that, that the acacia produces these branches that are flexible, they're pliable, they're bendable, they're easy to maneuver. You can weave them very easy if you can find your way around the thorns. Consider that for a moment. That the night in which the Lord was portrayed as Judas kissed him to identify him as Judas, as I often say, leaned forward to kiss the door of heaven on his way to hell. And then retreated back into the shadows. And fear and his own guilt condemned him. The Roman soldiers took the Lord. They have beaten him. And now they wait further instructions before they crucify him. Many years ago, we went down into a little area to see the smooth stones, massive stones, still in the underlying place in the city of Jerusalem where Roman soldiers played psychological games with prisoners which were sentenced to die. The Roman soldiers called it the game of kings. We've been there underneath the city streets where the Roman road was once laid. There in that cat cavernous place I put my hand on the smooth stones where some soldier has scratched out a makeshift game board in those days they would roll a dice or some type of carved wood element and they'd play a game with the soon to die captive they called it the game of kings the bible says that they taunted Jesus they put on him a robe of purple and then weaved a crown of thorns and then Put it upon his head. It's most likely given all the research of Hebrew scholars and horticulturists alike that the most common tree or shrub with thorns that was easily available and could be woven into a crown was the acacia plant or the acacia tree, the acacia branch. So they made him look like a king and they garnished him with a purple robe and they put in his hand a reed to mirror that of a scepter. But when the games were over, they took that reed away from him and they stripped off the purple robe and they beat the crown of thorns deeper into his skull. And they, according to Mark, began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with the reed and spit upon him and they bowed their knees and worshipped him. But when they were finished mocking him, they ripped off the purple robe and they put his own clothes on him and then they led him up to Golgotha to crucify him. Think of that! All of those years prior, once per year in the time of Moses, the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark made out of acacia wood. It was a temporary reprieve from judgment. It only lasted once a year. And then the next year, they had to do it over and over again. Every year, every year for centuries of time. But when Jesus died, the acacia was laid on his head. The Lamb of God, the acacia came on his head and it covered the blood on his head. It caused blood to protrude out of his head. He took the thorns and the curse for you and me on his head. He took the strife and the grind and the weariness on his head. All of life's troubles, he took it on his own head. And it would have been enough if he had died for my sin. But he also took my curse. The blood of the lamb was so great that it broke the curse levied upon Adam. And Eve, I stand here today to tell you that the Lord has 
has taken your sin and he has cast it. And the Lord has paid for your trouble and he's paid for your strife. He's not just a resurrected Savior. He's a complete Savior. Jesus paid it all. He paid the debt of sin. He took the curse of the thorns. He paid for our healing. Your healing. If you need to be healed, the Bible says, and with his stripes, we are healed. That's in present terms. Not only did he take your wounds internally and externally, not only did he heal your emotions and can heal it today, but he took all the grief, all the curse of your life. Listen to me. There is peace under the, under the umbrella of the Lord. There is tranquility. Your conscience can be cleaned because of what he did on Calvary. They put the blood on the acacia until Calvary. And they put the acacia on the lamb. And the blood, that blood is not like any other blood. That blood is the healing blood for everybody. That blood is going to heal you. That blood is going to save you. That blood is going to bring you out. Hear me. When the Lord looks at you, he doesn't see the former past that you were. But he's looking at you through his own blood. The Lord's blood is the healing, the atoning blood, the delivering blood. I remember a man who prayed years ago and he was, he was praying to the Lord and he, he gave the testimony. He was from a church in Texas and, and he told his pastor about it. It's been so long ago. And he said, I prayed to the Lord. He said, I could remember all the things that I had done in my life. There are so many skeletons in my closet. He said, I couldn't name all of them. But he said, I came to God and I repented of my sins. And I asked him to cover me with his blood and he did it. But my mind kept going back to all the things that I had done wrong. And he went to the altar and he prayed and he said, Lord... I remember what I did and these things still haunt me and he felt impressed of the Lord and he felt the Lord say no I found the time I'm looking at the pages of your history I found the date that you're talking about but I don't see the sin all I see are great drops of blood that stain the pages of your life And he didn't let it rest there. He took the crown of thorns because one day he needs to trade them in for a crown of gold. He came riding a donkey, lowly and meek, coming in peace, announcing his kingship. But when he comes back, he's going to be riding a white horse. He's going to split the eastern sky. When he comes back, he's going to come in a twinkling of an eye. When he comes back, he's going to come with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord in the sky. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. John, the revelator, described the Lord this way. When he saw Jesus, the Son of Man, he said, in the midst of the candlestick, seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, 
and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like in the fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the, the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun that shineth in his strength. Here's verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud sat like unto the son of man having in his head having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle and Paul came to say of this Jesus that he is the blessed and the only potentate the king of kings and the lord of lords I've got to declare to you that the king that's coming is no longer wearing a crown of thorns he's not on a cross and he's not in a tomb but the next time that we see him he's going to be riding on the eastern cloud and he's going to be wearing a crown of thorns and his vest is going to be dipped in blood and there's going to be a sword it's the word of God I think on resurrection Sunday we should just stand and clap our hands because the Lord is crowned king of all. He is the king of glory. He is the king of majesty. He is the Lord of lords. everything that exalted itself is going to come down and everything that rises against him is going to come down and every stronghold of the devil is going to come down and every intellectual thought that opposes him is going to come down and everything that's ever existed that defy him is going to come down and his truth is going to rise up and today we we can verbally crown him. He is king of kings, but there'll come a day. Hear me now. You're going to see him. He's going to wear a crown of gold. The acacia will be put aside. The blood won't flow any longer because the Lord will have conquered all things. Even today, I'd like you just to close your eyes and Lift up your hearts and your hands to God. And just say, Lord, I welcome you in my life. And I crown you the King of kings and Lord of lords. I crown you Savior. I crown you the Lord of my life, the King of my days. The King of my nights. My help and my strength. That's right. Just out of your own mouth, just say it. I worship you today. I give you glory. You are the resurrected Savior and you've resurrected me. Ah. That's right. Now, come on, just with a, with a loud praise now, we're calling out on God and we're worshiping this great King. Come on, let's do it one more time before we leave this house, this Easter morning, this resurrection morning. He's trading in those crowns of thorns. He's, he's wearing a crown of gold. He is our king. He is our savior.